Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Rewild My Bio. I am your host, Sean Slade, and I am grateful to have you here with me today for this episode all about organic food fermentation, from stinky starters to fine wine and everything in between. We're going to go over some tips and tricks so that you can master the art and the science and, and I guess know the science of fermenting food and beverages at home. So this is a topic near and dear to my heart. And uh, yeah, we're going to dive right into it today. This is a solo episode. All you got is me. I hope you guys find this beneficial. I've been on this kick lately to really bring some practical tips to you guys. So I hope that this podcast today is going to be just that something that you could head over to the show notes and you could you know, scroll down there to that speak player that I've got there, that lovely company, Tyler Bryden, who's been on the show multiple times, giving you a shout out right now and speak, but you go down to speak and you can see the transcripts. So we're going to get into recipes at the end of this episode and you guys can actually head over to rewildmybio.com and it's going to be slash organic food fermentation and you're going to have basically a how-to guide right there for you. So let me know if you find this one beneficial. I, uh, like I say, near and dear to my heart, if you uh, do not know, I am the co-founder of Butch Organic Kombucha. It is on an Ontario craft kombucha company, a great company, something I put my heart and soul into, creating the brand, which is basically an extension of my being. Uh, this company I am no longer involved with, and I am on to other bigger and better endeavors and exciting stuff now, but... Basically, this is a big part of my life. I spent, geez, over five years, um, you know, let's say actively involved in teaching people and supplying fermented products, essentially. So um, it, when I was a nutritionist, a big part of my life was doing just that, doing workshops on fermented food and, you know, from sauerkraut again to kombucha and everything in between. And yeah, I found a lot of benefit from that because this is one of those topics where I feel like huge industry has emerged. You see marketing that's going to sway opinions. And um, just like anything, just like yogurt, actually yogurt would be a great example. And ever since yogurt research started coming out in the 90s, we started to see the, the marketing around yogurt and we've got different celebrities trying to sell us whatever brand, this, that type of yogurt. Um, and yeah, I mean, are these foods actually beneficial for us or are we just being told that by marketers? So something I, again, am near and dear to my, is near and dear to my heart and reason why I decided to start a company that, you know, is staying true to that particular beverage, which is kombucha, right? Even though producing it in a mass way. So, I mean, what I want to do here basically is something I think is important is um, give you guys the tools to do this stuff at home because when I started doing workshops way back when my main reason for doing that is because it is expensive sometimes to go out and buy all sorts of different fermented foods and things and even getting right into craft beer because I mean one of my favorite things to ferment let's be honest is beer and I'm actually way overdue for fermenting and or you know brewing some beer so I'm definitely going to get on that soon but um where was I going with that oh yeah really want to give you guys the tools, right? It's that whole philosophy, teach a person to fish, they'll eat for a lifetime. And I feel like lately, I don't know, we're not teaching enough people how to fish in different regards to 
all things rewilding, let's just say, in nature connection. So I think food processing and preservation will get into the history of fermented foods today. Sure, we'll talk about the health benefits, but realistically, it's something that we evolved with and evolved with us. So without further ado, I'm going to give you guys a brief agenda. What we're going to talk about is what is fermentation. So I'm going to define that for you guys. I'm going to get into bacteria, evolution, and fermentation, as I just alluded to. I'm going to talk about the practical benefits of fermentation. So from a food preservation and a homesteading standpoint, or a rewilding lens, if you will, if you want to get back to eating locally and preserving that all year round. Um, And of course, we'll talk about the health benefits, like I already said. We're going to get into some definitions, concepts, um, some equipment that you might need. We're going to go over a little overview of, say, all things fashionable ferments. Um, And then, yeah, I'll get into a recipe. We'll see how much time we got. We'll see how much I blabber on. Um, This is actually all coming from a a talk I had given at the Guelph Organic Conference some time ago. Um, But basically, yeah, throwing this out here for your educational needs. Um, But, yeah, my goal overall is to get you guys comfortable fermenting at home and just how you can optimize consumption of this stuff. So anyways, without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Welcome to Rewild My Bio, a self-help and alternative health podcast. I'm your host, Sean Slade. Join me as I share stories, science, and strategies to help you rewild your biology and redefine your biography. ever thought that everything that we eat is essentially a fermented food or I mean I guess it goes through a fermentation process through our digestive tracts that's what's essentially happening it's breaking down Um, I've heard the analogy once before was taught to me that think of like your stomach as a blender and throw a little like shot of apple cider vinegar and whatever your dinner is blend that up and keep the lid on it and try to well this is a this is a half-ass experiment but basically whatever is left over there in eight hours like watch what that smells like it's going to start to ferment itself and, and come together right so that's what's happening in our in our guts and i mean like i say ever since adam and eve they picked that apple off that tree you know if they were really smart actually yeah if they were really smart they would have just fermented they would have squeezed those apples and fermented the juice and got real wild out there but um no ever since the beginning of time essentially our our evolution has depended on fermentation. So what is fermentation? Well, in the context of food and drink, let's just say it this way. Fermentation is the transformation of food by various bacteria, fungi, yeasts, and the enzymes they produce. So, you know, think of think of the life-death cycle of an apple in nature. So when an apple falls from a tree, it's full of sugar. It lands on the ground, the bugs, little like bugs that we can see in the microbes that are all going to start breaking this down. It's actually going to break down into alcohol. So at one point in time, it begins this fermentation process where it produces alcohol in the beginning. And then once that alcohol has ran, you know, its course and there's no sugars left, we're going to eventually slowly produce vinegar. And then over time, that will go back to water. And then that whole process starts over again. If say that apple were to sit there and just 
decay or ferment over time, you know? So one thing, I mean, I don't know if you guys out there are fermentation vets or not. I guess today I'm going to do my best to just throw everything I know. So some things might, uh, if they seem above your pay grade, shoot me a message, Sean at rewild my bio. I'm happy to answer you guys questions with this. I've actually been receiving more questions lately and it's part of the reason I think I'm happy to have gone to a two week, uh, episode thing right now, at least for the summer months. So hopefully this one gets out. I know it will be here in the summer, hopefully, but, uh, and that said, everything today is kind of a companion to, uh, episode 26 with Dr. Kim Bretz and Dr. Richard Vicksinic and all things we talked about there, rewilding the microbiome, specifically getting into the whole relationship between, uh, soil biodiversity and gut health and overall human health. So anyways, <clears throat> Let's get into this discussion on evolution because the reason why I wanted to just say that is because we talked about a lot of things in that episode. So I'm going to try not to cover things here in that regard. But we have fermented our way through evolution. Um, and I would say we ev- continue to evolve to ferment, or at least that's my life goal. And uh, yeah, anaerobic fermenting bacteria evolved before the presence of oxygen. So single cell Organisms interacted with these fermenting bacteria way before there was oxygen on Earth um, to form the first eukaryotic cells that now make up plants and fungi, animals and animals of the sea and, you know, eventually land-dwelling animals, right? Once we crawled out of the oceans, we could not exist or function today without this interaction. And actually, these ancient bacteria have shaped, very much shaped our DNA, which is an important thing, I think, to understand here in the current times where we start to vilify, you know, germs and microbes and all things. I say germs, using that term loosely, but broadly, obviously, here, because, um, yeah, it's a, it's a funny word, as we'll talk about later. Um, actually, speaking of all this, genes, horizontal gene transfer. It's one thing that's coming to mind is that, you know, yes, most of our genes come from our primate ancestors, But many of them slipped into our DNA from microbes living in and on our bodies through a presence called horizontal gene transfer. So basically bacteria, they kind of slip genes to each other and then humans have evolved by actually acquiring fermenting bacteria from our environment that that help us digest nutrients. So nutrients, you know, such as vitamins B and K. Uh, we would not otherwise be able to assimilate if it wasn't from acquiring this ability from bacteria in our environment. Um, so from apples to barley, we have you know acquired the ability to digest so many foods because of the diverse community of bacteria that lives in our gut and we pick up over the thousands of years of evolution. So I always think it's, you know, and I said that in the last episode, but kind of makes me wonder who domesticated who? Did we domesticate the apple tree or did the bacteria we picked up from the apple tree domesticate us tell us to settle down and keep replanting these seeds right interesting um and then of course with the whole more bacteria than human question uh it came up in our in that episode 25 so um i mean we've probably all heard that we are more bacteria than human and it's often stated that bacteria in our bodies outnumber our human dna cells by 10 to 1 uh, this is often cited to call attention to the importance of bacteria and I mean, I guess it lessens the stigma around germs and bugs, right? In Western culture, that's how I think of it anyways, that by thinking of ourselves as more, 
than of bacteria than human, I think it kind of allows us to stop thinking of germs as like a bad thing or even germs as a thing. Um, you know, and I've even come across things like 30 to 1, 100 to 1. I think uh, Kim Bretz had mentioned a, a different number. I, I'm not one to say I could speak with any authority in regards to what that actually uh, that number actually is. And then I've even seen things quite well reviewed things that are saying that the ratio of bacteria to human is actually more like one to one. So, um, but anyways, this 10 to one ratio is often cited to highlight, you know, what's not debatable. And I think that is the importance of bacteria in our guts. Um, you know, however, still more research needs to be done, but, um, actually a great resource and I'll throw that out here now and I'll link it in the show notes rewildmybio.com slash organic food fermentation. So, but that resource is The Art of Fermentation by Sander Katz. It's kind of like the the Holy Bible. Um, A lot of this content here from this very uh, slideshow that I had put together for the the Guelph Conference is, um, is coming from that book. So, I mean, he has another book, Wild Fermentation, which is a great, um, great book as well. But here's a little quote from the book. It says, to view ourselves as masters and microorganisms as servants denies our mutual interdependence. And I think that's uh, very true because just a, a change of mind, uh, mindset rather, that I think is so important for us to, I think, fully embrace fermented foods. Um, now, I know they've become quite popular in recent years, um, but anyways, I'm just trying to say bacteria is important and I think it's pretty cool. So, and why is it cool? Well, it does neat things. It regulates balance between energy use and storage. Um, so like the presence or lack of certain bacteria could turn on or off genes and impact how our immune system actually handles viruses and pathogens. Um, there's actually a lot of research around autism and bacteria and a link there. Um, so yeah, it modulates expression of genes. And diversity is very important, as you've heard me say, I guess, if you listen to episode 26. Um, the skin is home to very different landscapes of species of bacteria, much like there's a great difference in plant and wildlife species you would find between, say, a rainforest and a desert, right? So diversity of bacteria is good for not only our skin and digestive system, but it's also good for our communities and the earth itself, right? Having that diversity from rainforest to desert to mountain. You know, it might not appear that way on the news or in practice that diversity is good, right? Or I mean, I guess now we're definitely speaking about diversity in a more, in a different way. But again, um, camels need deserts, grizzly bears need the Rocky Mountains and our bodies need the same diversity to be able to adapt and continue to evolve. We need diversity within our microbiome. So bacteria are our ancestors, essentially. It's the way I have looked at it. I've said that many times here on the show. I think it's important for human physiology to know exactly what's happening or to at least continue to get a better understanding, more uh, a more comprehensive understanding on our microbiome and our health. Um And I also think getting a handle on and understanding how our sterile food processing system and sterile food and sterile soil is impacting our health. So I always ask the question, did Western culture kill culture, right? Um, 
And I mean, that question, let's segue from bacteria actually. Um, and again, refer you to episode 26, um, where we're talking about, you know, the importance of fermenting food at home, but bacteria are our ancestors and the context for all life. So, um, you know, they improve, they preserve, and they protect our food. And through our practices here in the West, we've essentially killed bacteria cultures and uh, we've killed culture in the, in the process, right? And, uh, you know, just thinking of like things like sauerkraut and that, it's not necessarily within the, the normal taste preference of the average North American, right? So despite the coevolutionary nature of humans, bacteria, the indu- with the industrialization, our food has become dangerously sterile, and I think our soil has too. Um, and ever since Western medicine was able to identify bacterial pathogens, our culture, essentially, we've just declared war on almost all bacteria. It's just, you know, germs. Ew, not good. Um but yeah, one thing I actually do want to mention right now, I'm, th- I'm just thinking about like, again, killing culture and then it's now, now being sold them back, right? So you might not, you might know that Monsanto, the company uh, that creates glyphosate and uh, well, essentially they were bought by Bayer some time ago. And it's, I just find it's interesting that they're trying to patent glyphosate as a, essentially like a, you know, a, a super or any type of, right antibiotic resistance uh, being so prevalent now that they're saying that let's use glyphosate and let's just wipe everything out. And then Bayer has been trying to patent different or has been patented, patenting different strains of uh, probiotics. So essentially I just see this one company, huge company that, you know, the merger of which was, is, is very much disputed. I don't even know how it happened. Money and power probably, but I digress. But essentially uh, you've got, this one huge company and a company, mind you, Bayer being involved in uh, gas chambers back in the day. Just want to throw that out there. Scary shit. I'm trying to say scary shit, but essentially killing all bacteria in our guts and then re selling or selling us back a probiotic strain. So um, again, this is why this episode is important. This is why I enjoy talking about this stuff because this is something that happens inside of our bodies. We're born with this ability. We're born with these bacteria. We want to, it's up to us to be able to maintain them, right? I believe it's our responsibility. We can't ask somebody else to, to wear a mask to, to, to influence or not influence our, uh, microbiome or our microbiome, if you will. Um, we're all like little pig pens. I don't know. I think that there was a research study and I'll find it if I can. I know I have it. I'll link it in the show notes, but it's, we're all like little pig pens off of the move or off, off of the peanuts, peanuts comic strip, um, where you walk into a room and you've got this cloud of dust and dirt around you. And this will actually, this is unique to the individual science scientists have been able to measure, um, uniqueness to each individual. And that actually, I believe lingers in the air, depending on airflow and whatnot, but can linger up to two minutes within like say a stagnant room. So you walk into the lunchroom type thing and your musk, so to speak, is just left lingering. And this is a cloud of bacteria that is from dead and dying skin, hair, follicles, all, all sorts of difference, fecal matter, most likely viruses, most, most definitely. Right. So, um, find that fascinating. In fact, there is a article um, called Genetic Potluck published in the journal Nature, I believe back in a decade ago or so. And I will link that in the show notes. 
Um, and in fact, I've got this quote here from this. So I asked the question, how have industrialized agriculture and food practices influenced our intestinal microbiota? That is a research question I've been keen on knowing for some time. And in this article, um, the author, and I quote, consumption of hyper-hygienic, mass-produced, highly processed, and calorie-dense foods is testing how rapidly the microbiota of individuals in industrialized countries can adapt while being deprived of the environmental reservoirs of microbial genes that allow adaptation by lateral transfer. So again, talking about that gene transfer, right? Um, so yeah, we're, we're, we're lacking something. We're conducting a little science experiment. I say we broadly as in the cultural senses, North, North Americans, right? In, in, in our standard American diet, the sad diet, right? Um, but anyways, let's pick it up. Let's talk about happy things and the practical benefits of fermenting food and beverages. So if you're into the idea of homesteading like I am, or you want to live up closer to the land and buy local seasonal things and preserve them for a period of time, well, the word, the word culture actually used to mean um, to cultivate from the land. So what made cultures unique from one another is their interaction with plants and animals within their specific local environment and bioregion and what foods and obviously bacteria um, to cultivate or how to cultivate them together so that they could preserve them, right? And make the most out of foods. Um, and, and by doing so, made up their culture. So examples would be like kimchi for Koreans and French would have their wine and Belgian, Belgian, Belgians rather would have their beer. Um, so those practical benefits obviously include things like preserving and all of these foods, um, you know, we're going to talk about here in a minute, were created when fermentation slowing devices, so I always call fridges fermentation slowing devices, um, when they did not exist. So, right, so a fridge basically cools things off and it slows down the decay of it. So it's a fermentation slowing device. It's a good way of thinking about if you're into fermentation, your fridge is, if you want to slow something down, stick it in your fridge, but you want to keep it going, depending on obviously what it is and, and whatnot. But anyways... I guess we could do upper level. This would be more broad today. Um, but if you properly ferment your food or beverage, shelf life can be you know, a very long time and it's a great way to preserve, harvest, and also save on electricity but rather than throwing it into your fridge. Um, and fermented foods were the first condiments. That's one really interest, interesting uh, practical benefit, right? Taking what could be bland uh, vegetables and by putting them together and having them the flavors marry through fermentation. I mean, one of my favorite dishes is just like a fermented sriracha. Um, and it's just taking hot peppers and blending them together, ferment, having them fermented. It has this unique sourness and acidity that is, you know, can spice up any meat and vegetable type dish, right? So um, another really good reason though is honestly income. I'm just thinking personal, personally, any small scale farmer with a spot at a local farmer's market can greatly increase profit margins on a head of cabbage by, you know, making and selling sauerkraut or making and selling, say, bottles of kombucha from the small little raspberries that happen to be produced this year, right? Too small to sell, make some flavored kombucha, boom, and, uh, you know, huge profit margins there, right? So... Um, there's, of course there's things like, I'm just thinking back to the kombucha days, but there's things like art, right? So there's those scoby jackets that you see out there. Uh, 
I don't know if they're like technically be vegan because it is a SCOBY, which is a symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. But um, yeah, people making handbags and stuff out of SCOBYs. Oh yeah. But anyways, I digress. And uh, let's talk about the actual health benefit. Um, and this is going to be broad and I'm not going to get into specifics on say studies, but I, I, we did talk about this in episode 26, but essentially since we're talking about fermented food here today, it's worth covering again. Um, so let's say for fermented food and drink as medicine. So from Ayurveda to traditional Chinese medicine, uh, fermented foods have been part of very ancient healthcare practices. Um, Confucius actually believed that kombucha and kimchi were to be part of good health, just considered synonymous with good health. And, you know, there's tons of herbal elixirs that have been made by fermenting all sorts of different roots and tubers and mushrooms and things throughout history. Um, I'm thinking penicillin, actually, right? Of, of course, um, it was discovered by an accidental mold that grew on a petri dish and killed the pathogenic bacteria that were inside that petri dish, right? So people are now actually, as I mentioned, becoming immune to antibiotics, right? So we look to say natural antimicrobials and antiviral mushrooms, things like reishi, turkey tail, chaga mushrooms, all these things, um, you know, are essentially medicine. And they're basically killing off, you know, advantageous bacteria, yeast, viruses, all sorts of things. You got to be careful saying that. I'm luckily not a health practitioner and I'm not giving you health advice saying that, uh, you know, this is going to kill any type of viruses that may be flooding the earth. But I'm ask, I'm questioning or exploring purely academically, right? Wink, wink. Um, but anyways, fermentation pre-digests and enhances nutrient content and bioavailability. So that's one thing I really want to discuss over and above the fact that it has probiotics, I'm going to just say that that, whether or not the probiotics, the good bacteria, as I'll define here in a minute, but the good bacteria, one important thing that I think is it should be put over and above the probiotics, which again, marketing has done a great job at saying they're going to, it's going to give probiotics and confer some type of benefit to the host. Um, it's a big, it's a big sale. Let's just say that it's a big, it's a big advertisement right there. Um, but Fermentation does pre-digest and it enhances nutrient content and bioavailability. So by breaking down um, something, say like cabbage into sauerkraut um, or by, you know, making spicy dill beans with your French beans, green beans, um, it's easier on the digestive system. So eating fermented foods with meals can actually help produce digestive enzymes by the acidity in them. I would, I personally benefit from having a little bit of say kombucha or kimchi right before a big meal. That's great, right? Um, it's a way to help our body digest things so we can actually extract and assimilate as much nutrients as possible. So um, it can remove also another important thing is fermentation can remove or render, in, render inactive anti-nutrients or get rid of toxins, right? So sourdough bread is a great example of how fermentation can inactivate anti-nutrients, something like say gluten, um, you know, it makes it less of a problem for people who have an intolerance to that, which is a lot of, a lot of folks, I believe, or so I believe, but, uh, fermenting say non-organic produce that can also remove toxins from pesticides. Now I did mention prior that we don't know whether or not, uh, 
you know, these good bacteria are getting to where they need to be. I will say that uh, when not cooked, it's most likely or essentially cooking any type of food that would have live bacteria cultures in it, heating those up over whatever temperature they would essentially die at. But cooking any food would essentially kill those bacteria. Um, so you would want to eat these raw, fermented, right? Um, again, though, we don't know where the probiotics necessarily go from there. But um, right now there's actually research shows mixed reviews on, you know, even efficacy of probiotic therapy. There's plenty of studies out there throwing monkey run, wrenches into, say, any, like, one standard protocol per, per se. So, um, you know, and there's may, obviously, though, many anecdotal accounts of fermented foods benefiting people who suffer from, say, celiac disease or constipation or Crohn's or any type of IBS. I know myself, I mean, taking, I just don't take fermented foods out of my diet. They're always, they're pretty much always there, right? So, um, but anyways, now, I mean, as far as your health goes, I think we could go a little deeper here. And I think I've already mentioned the marketing aspect. Um, in 2014, one of the most Googled health terms, there's somebody, I guess, who can, uh, obviously Google's analytics is, they're analyzing these things, they're always listening. Um, but the most Googled health term was fermented food, actually, right? So, um, and with the increase in demand for something, you know, with many barriers to entry, really, like a niche industry, like, say, kombucha or, or all these sauerkrauts, uh, a niche industry was born within health food, the health food world, right? So things like nut cheese, pickle juice, um, these are thriving businesses now, right? And, you know, though this is great and it helps folks, um, it comes with lots of questions, you know, and marketing ends up overselling fermented foods as the silver bullet in a magic cure-all. Um, and quite honestly, they're not for everyone. Can you get sick? Um, you know, is there contraindications? These are important things, I guess, um, to look into, right? Um, so say things like if you have candida um, or like a yeast overgrowth. And again, this is no diagnosis, but it might be important to stay away from some of these things, right? Um if you're, if you're goitrogenic vegetables, you know, fermentation doesn't make, I've, I've been asked that before, but uh, ferment, fermentation doesn't get rid of goitrogen, so, uh, which are, a th you know, thyroid suppressing. So if you had hypothyroidism, it wouldn't be a good idea to think that, oh, fermentation is going to make these more bioavailable and I can then eat them that way. So there's there's nuance to it. And I think, again, those the Sander Katz books is just a Bible for this type of stuff. So, um but yeah, there, there are definitely contraindications. So, I mean, talk to someone who knows some things, I guess, if you, because if, and I'm, it's all too often that you start with these probiotic therapies and things like that. And naturopathic doctors in that episode 26 will tell you, you know, go low and slow with these things, right? A lot of people end up running to the bathroom and they crush a whole bottle of kombucha and they didn't realize. Um, <laughs> so that's my disclaimer part. I guess I'm just doing my, uh, Due, due diligence here in regards to, you know, not trying to oversell the health benefits of fermented foods, but, but also, you know, pay attention to some of the contraindications that aren't so fun and cool. But anyways, before we go any further, I thought it'd be a good idea to discuss some things. Uh, for me, yeah, it might be, might be arguing semantics, Sean, and, and not important, but you hear things like microbiota, microbiome, dysbiosis, symbiosis. 
what are microbes, right? So microbes or microorganisms, they're any organism essentially that's microscopic. So bacteria, yeast, that, that's, a, that's a microbe. Um, a microbiota is the identification of microbes found in a specific environment. So formally, sometimes known as the gut flora, still called that, but microbiota would be like the, the group of microbes within a certain area. So you could have a skin microbiota, for example, your gut microbiota. The microbiome is the collection of microbial genomes in a whole environment. So again, those are, it sounds a little vague, right? But zoom out with the microbiome. That's the way I always think about them. Our individual microbiome is how we would speak of all the microbiota that are. So again, going back to that, the world, if we're all little miniature earths, then we've got desert areas, we've got mountain areas, we've got, you know, plains and grasslands and all that stuff, right? So a dysbiosis, important term because I think a lot of individuals deal with dysbiosis at different stages in their life. Um, and some do, or, you know, are dealing with chronic dysbiosis, right? So that's the imbalance of microbes in the microbiota, uh, especially say that of the gut, right? So believed to result in a number of health conditions where you've got, uh, you know, the bad bacteria, essentially, we're going to air quotes the bad bacteria. And, you know, I wouldn't say they're bad. There's something to learn from them, but we're going to call them bad because they're causing problems, which again, we have to learn from so we can see which bacteria aren't there anymore. What were we doing? So, and again, research is showing links between obesity, autism, all these things as a result of gut dysbiosis. So how do we get symbiosis or what is symbiosis? It's just the right mixture of the prebiotics, the probiotics that encourage good health, right? So probiotics, those advantageous bacteria um, that confer a health benefit to the host, they're going to go and eat the prebiotics in there. And nowadays there's even uh, some research, which I don't know if it's gaining much steam or not, but the postbiotics in the whole world of uh, diagnosing your poop and seeing what came out, right? Um, still a lot to learn, I think, before, and I've done some of these tests, but I still think probably a lot to learn unless you've got like some severe illness or you went somewhere and you've got something you need to figure out. But um, as far as like the over-the-counter uh, tests, I just don't necessarily know yet. I, th I think they're interesting, um, but they're a pretty penny also, right? So not necessary, but I will say what is necessary is, is getting to know what your poop looks like. Um, that is the soil that comes from our body. So if we're feeding ourselves healthfully, that will look a certain way. Our poop will look a certain way, right? So get the magnifying glass out, get down in dirt. No, you don't have to do that, but at least educating yourself a little bit on what a healthy stool should look like, right? So like say call it two to three times a day, 20 to 30 to 40 minutes, an hour after you eat, perhaps, um, regular, right? Six to 12 inches in leg, length, coiled, if you will, contours of the, the colon, of the large intestine. Um, things like that. Poop talk. But anyways, um, I'll save that for a conversation for you and your doctor, if your doctor knows anything, medical doctor knows anything about poop. And I'm not saying some don't, many do actually. But um, yeah, again, naturopathic medicine and doctors that like to get at the root cause of things will often want to say, hey, what's your poop look like? That was like, I was a personal trainer and I was like, what is poop? What is your poop all about? Sorry, things dinging. Pretty much telling me to get off your rant there, Sean, about poop. All right, so let's get back to it. So we just dis we discussed and we defined some of those terms. Now let's talk about probiotics. So experts have debated how to define probiotics because again, it comes down to the 
benefit that they confer to the individual. But one widely used definition developed by the World Health Organization and specifically a uh, Dr. Gregor Reed, who is a uh, professor at Western University and was is the gentleman whose lab I was working under while I was studying the health benefits of fermented food, or at least for the, the short period of time that I was there. Um, but he as essentially the grandfather now of the term or the father of the term. Um, I say that because he is, is just about to leave his academic post there. Um, but he uh, came up with this definition, and it is live microorganisms, which when administered in adequate amounts, confer a health benefit on the host. So, um, so things like lactobacillus and bifidobacterium, um, these things are all in, you know, things like kimchi, sauerkrauts, kefir, um, and they're generating reactive oxygen species. And they regulate and prevent apoptosis, so the death of a cell. They can attenuate inflammation. They promote intestinal, intestinal barrier function, right? So if we've got that symbiotic relationship in there, we've got a lot of the good bacteria, then we don't have, say, inflammation in the gut and little wars going inside, on inside of us, right? Um, so there's an optimal, you know, species to be in a certain area. There's an optimal combination of species, Um you know, it, it's, it's, it's very fascinating. When you look at probiotic th therapies, like duration, dosing, uh, largely un unanswered, right, or rapidly evolving and changing, which, again, we talked about in that episode 26, why it might be that the interdisciplinary nature or the whole paradigm shift that's happening because of this understanding, we need that interdisciplinary uh, protocols and, and essentially approach to healthcare, or so I would believe because um, naturopathic doctors have really pushed the way forward and have really dove into this and are educated on um, probiotic therapies. So I just want to give a shout out there where a shout out, I believe, is due. So what are prebiotics? It's essentially just the fiber that's not digested by the small intestines that is fermented by microbes in the large intestine. Um, yeah, yeast. Yeast is like an evolutionary subclass of, say, multi of the multicellular, like, fungi kingdom. Um, you know, so it's unicellular yeasts. People are often thinking, like, like I don't know, yeast is different, yes, than bacteria. Bacteria are just the single-celled organisms, unicellular. Um, and again, it's just a subclass of the fungi yeast is. Now, just the other day, actually, I posted something on the difference between fermentation versus pickling and... Um, I thought I'd go over that here because we're going to talk about fermentation, not pickling. And canning or pickling is is using liquid as the preserving li liquid, um, rather where fermentation would use a brine, something with lactic acid in it, so not vinegar. Um, canning and pickling is always a sterile environment, so you have to sterilize your uh, mason jars, whereas with fermentation, it just has to be clean. It doesn't have to be sterile. Um in fact, overly sterilizing uh, fermentation vessels could very well kill the bacteria that's the wild bacteria and yeast that might be needed for or will be needed for the fermentation process, right? So with within canning, you want to sterilize it because you don't want any growth of any bacteria. You want to basically instantly preserve the vegetable or whatever it is that you're canning. Um, so it doesn't kill any, or it, sorry, rather, it kills all pathogens in this process, right, by throwing it in vinegar, everything's dead. Um, it doesn't add any nutrients, canning or pickling, whereas obviously fermentation does. It 
things become more bioavailable and increases vitamin C content and things like that. Um, canning it, as I mentioned, boom, it's instantly fast. It's done. Fermentation is going to take some time to get to that right spot, right? So um, to where it encourages all the good bacteria growth where you'd want to then uh, start consuming it. I would say there's like with flavor, one thing to flavor, obviously flavors get quite complex and it's difficult when you're using wild, doing wild fermentation. Um, you know, it's, it's quite complex, the flavor, and it's, it's hard to repl- replicate often. Whereas with canning or pickling, you've got like one flavor, it's often the vinegar flavor or whatever your pickling spices are, but it's just going to be one, one flavor, one note, it's going to stay the same. It's easy to reproduce once you got that recipe. So, um, now shelf stability, as I mentioned, this is, we're, we're talking about fermentation as a means of preservation it's not shelf stable indefinitely whereas canning and pickling um, often is right so or it is you could leave that forever certain things now depending on your brine your temperature where you're at what you're fermenting all these different variables um, will depend on how shelf stable your fermented vegetable will last essentially so I hope that answers questions because I know that's something that uh, I used to like what's what's the difference i grew up in a you know a farm family so pickling things was common there were a few ferments that were done each year but for the most part we we pickled or canned everything right so anyways and um but let's talk now since we've done that distinction let's do a further distinction i've mentioned wild fermentation a couple times let's talk about the types of fermentation so wild fermentation essentially just describes a spontaneous fermentation initiated by organisms found on food naturally or say just occurring in the air so there's different aerobic fermentation so that's with oxygen and anaerobic would be without so something like kombucha you've got your cloth on top and it has like your whatever 7 to 14 day however long you want to make your first ferment or however you're doing it but essentially needs the oxygen right and we're doing a, well, it's not necessarily spontaneous because it's a culture. Uh, the bac- a SCOBY is a symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. And you add this culture to that aerobic fermentation. And that culture, um, it's essentially like a microbial starter, or a yeast starter. This is sometimes called like backslopping, depending on like, let's say if you're making sourdough bread, right? So taking a little from the last batch, keeping that, feeding it with sugar, and oxygen or whatever that bacteria yeast eats and feeding that and keeping it alive and using that in subsequent batches, right? So another term that's often used is lacto-fermentation. So it's wild fermentation where essentially lactic acid bacteria is produced and it succeeds. So succession is another key word um, because again, with fermentation, it's kind of a wild west. We've got bacteria fighting for dominance within a certain ecosystem, right? And ideally, if we give it the right environment, we follow our recipes properly, um, and we get the outcome that we're looking for. So the right type of bacteria will succeed. It doesn't always happen this way, and you definitely have to throw some batches out and things like that. But over time, and this is part that's the part right there I think keeps people from it, but just experimentation come at it with a curious child's mind. And I think it's, um, yeah, I think anybody can do it without a doubt. So, um, but succession, so let's think of community evolution in succession. All ferments involve communities of microorganisms that are working together. Might look like a fight at times and that it is, but um, microbial communities are dynamic. So throughout the life process of fermentation, and this is one of the things my PhD was looking at, 
prior to switching is what happens during the life cycle of um, different fermentation, what's produced, where, right? How can we, um, you know, essentially when you're looking at industry, tr trying to control so that you could produce something that's consistent, let's just say, right? Or, or safe or has that right, like as I mentioned, flavors are hard to kind of recreate. So how can we know what's happening with this unique dynamic interaction of the microbes so that we can continually replicate it, right? So succession will dictate conditions for what grows and how well it grows. So we know that in, you know, certain ferments, there's a certain process that happens where boom, now it's ready, right? Right when the bacteria are done doing their thing, now we can consume it, right? So, um, but like I, I often think of it too, again, back to the, back to the nature or the earth uh, analogies think of it like succession in a forest so each dominant species will alter light ph enzymes produce all that will you know yield the final product right that forest so it, it essentially is doing this through metabolic byproducts like say alcohol lactic acid acidic acid carbon dioxide all these different things are happening within fermentation and um yeah that's again bing was going off on a rabbit hole so every time i do that i think i set that up for that but anyways all these different uh variables are going to play a role in the outcome of your ferment so organisms we're trying to cultivate certain ones we're trying to cultivate certain ones we're trying to starve out um you know that might otherwise spoil your ferment so are you going to get sick i might as well start go there with that one um are you going to get sick probably not most likely not um but again buy a book follow some recipes and uh, or yeah follow some recipes or talk to friends that that ferment for a troubleshoot i think that's super important because the whole idea behind fermentation or so i believe is is the sharing of um yeah stories cultures right sharing our 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 sourdough starters sharing our kombucha scobies when they continually regrow it's just part of nature it's that that feedback loop right so um yeah but are you going to get sick again cleanliness over sterilization cleanliness is what we're looking for with fermentation so if you make cleanliness your goal you're not going to get sick that's what i would say so clean means washed and free from visible dirt sanitary means a clean surface that is sprayed with a sanitizer or a disinfectant um sterile means a surface that's either been boiled it's been burnt by flame or by alcohol right so we don't need the sanitization right and if you do and say you still have some of that chemical in there let's say you use a sanitizer it's going to essentially if you throw your kombucha in there after it's a good chance that could kill things even things like lemon juice can kill or kind of slow the fermentation process and throw a monkey wrench into uh, kombucha fermentation actually so again we don't want like certain antimicrobial like um, things like garlic and that can can do different can do things to your ferment and you need to learn these types of things but you're not going to get sick all right you might just have some different flavors or whatever you might not like that batch but that's how it goes cross-contamination now that's worth mentioning and that's the introduction of a foreign microorganism to a microbial community that disrupts the, the proper succession of you know the indigenous microbes in that community that are looking to survive so um so example I always think of would be sour beers, right? And wild fermented beers that use wild yeast strains. They can infect um, acetobacter bacteria 
often into a brewery and that can just spoil all the other beer. So often, often every time a lot of craft breweries have to manage the, the production of beer for that very reason so that all other beers that aren't wild or sour aren't spoiling. So, um, yeah, it's just interesting stuff. Um, but yeah, rule of thumb, like let's say even making like kombucha and beer in the same, right? You wouldn't want to make your, uh, don't make your beer before you've cleaned up making your kombucha if you're doing this stuff at home, right? So this is important to like, if you are making fermentation, ferment, if you're having a fermentation party, I wouldn't necessarily be doing like beer and kombucha together. Maybe just do vegetables and try to do one thing at a time. If you're using a salt brine, you're not going to run into much problems. But uh, again, live and learn with this type of stuff. Um, microbes float through the air too, of course, right? Which can also cross contaminate. So um, how do we know what's in the air? We don't, you know, just uh, don't be doing this in like some weird dungy basement or something weird that's got mold growing. If you live there anyways, you got to get out before you even bother with this. So anyways, I digress. Let's talk about, let's talk about more, more about the environments because I've made mention of a few different variables and I want to bring this back in for you guys because I think, um, yeah, I can sometimes ramble about fermentation, but no, there's selective environments within that we're looking at to create a good final fermented food. So tons of variables and they'll all create a specific environment with a proper function or part to the fermentation process. So aerobic fermentation. Now aerobic fermentation just needs oxygen. I already mentioned that. So kombucha, vinegar, tempeh. Um, Anaerobic fermentation would be like say wine and beer. You don't want any oxygen. Certain vegetables do them submerged under a brine or with a airtight phyto jar. Um, But of course veggies need to be burped because then they'd have carbon dioxide would be produced, right? So um, temperature, the temperature that you're fermenting things um, is important. So things like a lager beer would be fermented colder than, say, an ale. Um, golden rule, I'd say, is that warmer temperature means faster ferment. Like I mentioned with the fermentation slowing device, a.k.a. the fridge, cold means slow fermentation. And that's different across cultures, you know, based on geography and things like that. So different beers are produced in different areas of the world for that very reason, right? So um, I remember when I was in Guatemala in the kombucha, explosive down there, the ginger beer and kombucha, especially because where I was at, and I'll give a shout out to the folks that love probiotics and I'll link them in the show notes, but um, they actually do kombucha workshops and they, uh, all sorts of different ferments and fermentation workshops, I should say. Um, And they studied with Sander Katz, but anyways, uh, the kombucha there, because yeah, there wasn't always power. So the fridge would shut off every now and then. And then, yeah, just continue to ferment. So dangerously, but tasty and good stuff. And um, humidity, that's another one, right? So it will vary. And usually the humidity of an average home is good for most of the things that, you know, you're looking to ferment. Certain things, obviously, specialized uh, foods and whatnot would need different different temperatures. So um, water, water is an important thing. Dechlorinated water is the key. Uh, chlorine kills life and we want life to grow within ferments, right? This is not a sterile, you could use dechlorinated water if you're using can- canning or pickling, but not for fermentation. Um, but buy a good water filter that kills chlorines, 
um, any type of chlorine. And uh, I mean, there's the whole thing, letting it sit out for 12 hours. I don't really necessarily, honestly, I don't know if that's truth. Folks do it. I would just say if you don't, you, you need the good water filter again for many, many reasons in my opinion. But uh, spring water, now could you use spring water? That's a, that's a question I've been asked before and without a doubt because you're adding salt for the most part if you're using this as a brine. Um and there might be microbes and things in your kombucha. So maybe just throwing a batch of spring water here and there might disrupt your kombucha. Um, so kind of using the same water every time. But again, you'll be boiling your water to make tea there. So you're killing most of those microbes anyways. But um, but yeah, just a thought there. Uh, salt. Salt is another variable, right, that plays an important role in a lot of ferments. So don't use table salt. Um, use unrefined sea salts. Himalayan salt, it's drier than other sea salts, so I think Himalayan salt is, is often the way to go. Um, more salt means slower fermentation and less chance of spoilage, so remember that. So if you're looking to keep something a little longer and you don't mind maybe it being a little extra salty or you can wash it off, um, more salt. Salt can also uh, keep things a little bit firmer, um, right? So and again, too much salt would mean no fermentation at all, so you don't want to over overdo it. Um, but yeah. One thing I like salt is one, I like salt, but two, it adds that crunch by removing water and tightening up all those plant cell walls, right? So, um, you know, salt is not even technically needed for vegetables, but salt for meat curing is huge from a food safety standpoint. So you don't always need lots of salt, depending again on what you're doing. So the food you put in, all right? So whatever the, there's another variable, obviously I've mentioned that. So the amount of starcher, or say sugar, um, which is the food, the sugar, the the sugar in the food is what the microbes will be eating, um, along with the temperature and the time can determine the outcome. So those are the the main variables. So again, the amount of starter or sugar which is in the in the food, along with the temperature and the time, will determine the outcome of what you get. So that's kind of the the overall eagle eye kind of recipe there. But um, again, making your sugar organic, I think, is important. But again, not necessary because through fermentation, we're making these things less harmful, at least the toxins that are in them, less harmful, according to all things in the art of fermentation from Sander Katz. So, um, and of course, sunlight. You can't forget the sun. Sun is really what is making this whole process, this whole life thing happen. And I hate to sound like such a, such a sun worshiper, but I just am. And it's, um, yeah. So there's not too many ferments that like direct sunlight, um, though most do need, and, and most do actually need like complete darkness, really. Um, some sour pickles you can put out in the sun, but uh, you definitely want to keep things like beer out of, you know, direct and indirect sunlight bouncing. But sun, like, yeah, sun can really speed up a ferment or almost spoil certain things, right? Um, so be careful with sun and you want to store things in, yeah, kind of the up above the cupboard type space in the kitchen. So anyways, let's get into some fashionable ferments. And I'm going to just quickly go over some in case you were unaware that these foods are indeed fermented. And well, before I do that, well, you know what? Let's get right into it. And then we'll do this all in good time here because we're getting close to the hour mark. So another really good book would be Sacred and Herbal Healing Beers. Um, Stephen Herod Booner, I believe. Totally butchered the man's name, and I'm sorry for that. But anyways, great book. 
segueing into my first fashionable ferment or so I believe beer, cider, and wine. Honestly, one of my favorites to consume and something I don't consume all too often, sometimes all too much though, of course, because um, we're essentially fermenting sugars. You know, fermenting sugars makes cider, um, it makes wine, it makes dandelion wine, ginger beer, mead, the sugar within, you know, fruits, plants, honey, um, within the grains, so barley and rice, um, I'm thinking of Mayan mead, all these things, right, are sugars, and we're fermenting sugars, and drinking sugar and alcohol isn't the best to do it every day. Now, that said, it's also a part of the folks in the blue zones where I know a lot of folks drinking a little bit of alcohol a day, sake, wine, um, you know, long, long, long uh, list of, you know, anecdotal stories, resources, science saying that this a little bit a day isn't a bad thing, right? So, um, but I'm thinking back to every culture in the world has a traditional alcoholic beverage. Like in the Western world, how beer was more accessible, cheaper, and safer to drink than water during early parts of the Industrial Revolution, right? In the Mayans, as I just mentioned, their mead, um, they would drink, you know, mead, which is wine made from honey, and they believed it connected them with their gods, their god of inebriation, and regarded the act of drinking and getting drunk as a ceremonial and spiritual rite of passage, right? So um, this is why spirits have, they're said to have spirits in them, right? Some would say dark spirits, Um but, you know, there's accounts of, um, actually, the Mayans, I, I think, is, and again, it's in this book, um, accounts of them planting morning glories near their mead uh, beehives so that the beverage would be somewhat hallucinogenic because the morning glories would have a, a hallucinogenic property, apparently, and that it would just make the mead extra hallucinogenic and allow them to speak with the gods and whatnot, right? So, um, but to ferment alcohol, we use, you know, those ingredients, again, of sugar, water, yeast and thyme so rendering sugars through you know say pressing grapes or apples for wine or cider and then releasing the sugars trapped in say the grains by making a wort with your beer that the yeast that you would add in or pitch would then be added to and, and make ferment and make beer um right so you can do things like say wild fermented apple cider or using this you know the apple juice with no yeast or, or starter no champagne uh yeast starter um and you're just using, say, like the actual microbes that are on the apple to make a awesome hard cider. If you haven't done that, that is one of my favorites. Um, but again, it's all things measuring density. I think to getting into fermentation, I wouldn't necessarily like start with beer, cider, and wine unless you really love beer, cider, or wine by all means. I just think it's a, a difficult one in all things that I've done. So anyways... On to the next fashionable ferment, because I don't want to take too much time, but grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds. So things like sourdough bread, miso, tempeh, soy sauce, those are all coming from legumes. Um, what else? Nut cheese and pâtés. And then seeds are things like, you know, soaking and sprouting, which essentially is a fermentation process, right? Um, yeah, so sourdough bread. Absolutely love doing sourdough bread. Uh, probably one of the 
one of the most unique things to do because you can use different flours. You don't want to necessarily, when you're doing sourdough bread, you don't want to necessarily mix flours right away. I know some people might say doing that, but you don't want to change things up too much with your starters. You want to get them, those starters used to eating a certain something. So having different starters around, your house start to sm- starts to smell a little funky when you have sourdough, when you're in the process of doing lots of sourdough. Um, but man, it tastes good. But anyways... Sour and fizzy beverages, so over exclude, excluding from, say, just alcoholic fermented beverages, things like ginger beer, jun, kvass, root beer, tibicos, or, or water kefir, kombucha, uh, drinking vinegar. There's actually a really good book called True Brews, and they've got a whole whack of awesome recipes that if you actually, and I believe beer as well. Um, so yeah, if you want to get into the fizzy beverage side of things check out that book true brews it's by emma christensen and i'll link that in the show notes again over there at rewildmybio.com slash organic food fermentation next on the list vegetables so different ways to do your vegetables you can do a no brine or a brine so a no brine would be something like sauerkraut or kimchi and i mean you're just chopping up your cabbage chop that up massage in the salt until the juices of the cabbage are literally submerging the actual pieces of cabbage and then you pour in that into your vessel put the lid on it there there you stay or put in a crock put your lid on it keep it submerged under that liquid that salty liquid and at the end boom you've got delicious sauerkraut or kimchi and then brines on the other hand would be things for say like beans beets carrots a little bit more uh, dense vegetables right? And, um, well, I'll tell you in a little bit here about making up the proper brine for some pickled beets. Let's just do that today. We're at the hour mark and I'm respectful of that. We'll go over a couple more different things that you might not realize are fermented. One of which meat and fish. Did you know it? So drying, salting, smoking, curing, brining. Um, I'm no pro in this, but I've recently began experimenting with making my own charcuterie in regards to uh, using venison, and it involves adding a starter culture of lactobacillus into the meat. And there's a whole whack of slippery slopes to go down there, so I'm not going to be the one. You don't want botulism, and you don't you don't want that. So you want to make sure you're doing this stuff right, cooking it perhaps afterwards, but not necessarily. You don't necessarily have to. But as far as like storage, flavor, texture goes, like meat and fish, delicious, right? Um, and again, the potential health hazards, so I'm not going to spend much time there. Let's jump into dairy. So things like yogurt and kefir, very popular. Cheese, obviously. Whey, another one. I've never made my own cheese, but where I pick up my raw dairy, or at least where I used to pick up my raw dairy, I'm part of a cow share because buying raw dairy is illegal in Ontario. So what I do is I'm part of a cow share, and they have cows, and I own those cows as part, as part owner of the farm, and... I get raw dairy from there. So where I used to have to pick this up because the farm's a little bit away, away, so they'd have a drop zone. But anyways, this guy would make cheese. Man, his house just smelled horrible. I couldn't, uh, there's no way I could make cheese in my house, I don't think. I don't know. But, um, and I'm not a huge cheese eater either. But um, things like kefir, kefir is, honestly, it's great medicine. I, I dabble in the yogurt. The, the cow share, they'll actually make yogurt. So I'll get yogurt from them in the in the spring, summertime occasionally. Um, tasty stuff. But kefir is great medicine, in my opinion, for helping someone with constipation. Um, adding it to smoothies just a little bit is great. Um, some people enjoy drinking it straight. 
It's kind of like sour milk. Um, but yeah, it's essentially made by adding kefir grains, these crazy advantageous multiplying little grains. Um, you add them to the milk and you let it sit on your counter for a couple of days and it sours and you have kefir after. But anyways, yeah, super, super good medicine, you could say. Okay, so recipes. As I mentioned, consistency is king in my opinion. So if you're going to get into a recipe, perfect one, then move on. Kind of like with beer. Perfect your your standard ale before you get into the triple IPAs and things like that, right? But so consistency is king. I'd say start small and then scale up. You don't have to go right to uh, you know mass production if you're thinking business-wise, right? Start small, scale up. Um, I think s- scaling small batches is easier. You can get consistent. Scaling doesn't always work with like teaspoons of salt and things like that. Using weight rather than uh, measurements like uh, cups and things like that is is really the way to go when making up brines and things like that. Um, so one thing though I think is important, time. Remember time is an ingredient. You can't just say, hey, I'm going to go start making this fermented bean thing for this weekend and it takes you know two weeks so just remember time is a key ingredient um and just follow the scientific method overall be a scientist right change one variable at a time whether that's length of time the amount of sugar or salt or flour temperature etc but just yeah be a little scientist and have a notebook right so i think that's super important um we could just dive into tons of equipment um but I mean, for the purposes of say some pickled, um, some some spicy dill beans rather, uh, just a good old mason jar or a phyto jar is really all you need. You're gonna need a bowl. You're gonna need some salt. You're gonna need a, a you know a mixing uh, spoon of sorts. You're gonna need a knife or a really sharp knife. That's important. Or a good food processor as well um, for a lot of this stuff. Crocs are good, but they can be pricey. So finding those at antique stores and Things like that is a good idea. Um, But yeah, let's talk about brining and dry salt methods because I want this to be there for you guys for a resource. So if you're going to make a brine, which again is a liquid you're going to submerge your beans in, your water should contain a 5 to say 10% salinity. So let's say 5 to 100 grams or 50 to 100 grams of salt if you're doing say I guess you know what I won't throw it out. I won't throw out the, the grams right now, because um, then again it's all going to be different. But let's say if you're doing a liter of water, um, five to five to ten teaspoons of salt to say one liter of water. So again, fifty to hundred grams per liter of water is technically, um, and again varies depending on the vegetable and the recipe. So if you've got something that you want to stay a little more crunchy up closer to the 10% salinity. If you wanted something um, that you don't want so salty, down closer to 5%, all right? So that's making a brine. So just combining combination of water and salt that the vegetables will essentially just be submerged in. Um, if you Let's say if you're making a pepper sauce, I'm gonna try to give a few examples over and above just the, the beans, but let's say you're making a pepper sauce. Go with more salt to retain the crunchiness when you're, um, right? And then add flavor to your condom, you know, it will add, add more flavor. It's going to help preserve it a little bit longer as well um, by just adding a little bit more salt. I think it's flavor because you're, again, condiments, you're only using a little bit. So a little extra salt on, say, just a dab of some fermented sriracha, it will be good. So if you have carrots, um, 
that are quite firm, go with less salt, right? Or let's say you've harvested carrots and you sat them out and you forgot them for a day and they're in their in their lamp or you just got old produce and you know middle of the winter you bought carrots and you haven't done anything with them chop them up add more salt it will firm them back up and it's gonna you know it's a great way to spruce it up and give it a second life essentially right rather than just tossing it out so you save money uh, which is a good thing dry salting now if you're gonna do again like the the dry salt method like you would when you're making sauerkraut use a one and a half to say two percent salt to vegetable weight ratio all right, so 1.5 to 2% salt to vegetable weight ratio. So let's say if you've got 500 grams of vegetables, that would be about two teaspoons of salt, right? Um, again, just do the math, 1.5 to 2% salt to vegetable weight ratio, and you will be good to go. But dry salting, yeah, involves just chopping it up, um, create more, exp- ideally you want to create a lot of exposed surface area for the salt to, you know, aggressively and just be aggressively massaged in there, um, into that chopped vegetable. And then, uh, you know, it will sweat as it's called or release. It's basically it's liquids, which then the cabbage is submerged in and anaerobically fermented. So that's how you would do that. Now, before I let you fermentationist out into the world to ferment things around you more than you already have been ever since you've been here, because that's what our bodies do. I'm going to give you the world's tastiest brined garlic dill beans. Oh yeah, it's good. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a brine with a 5% salinity. These are the ingredients. Okay, so check this down. Write this down. Brine, 5% salinity. Green beans, both ends removed. Pro tip here coming at you. There's actually a bacteria that's on the tip of of a green bean. So not the end that's coming from the plant that's flowered and grew out of it. That actual tip that comes out of that flower has a bacteria on it that will actually spoil, believe it or not, spoil your ferment. And it doesn't always spoil it, but it can kind of just, that whole succession piece throws a big monkey wrench into things sometimes, especially if you're, say, not properly washing or something like that and having it clean of dirt. But um, yeah, interesting, eh? But anyways, two to three cloves of garlic, some fresh dill to preference, however dilly you like your dill beans. Five to ten black peppercorns and then one bay leaf. And bay leaves, this is why I decided to, again, another pro tip, but tannins are important for crunchiness. So you could use an oak leaf, you could use a bay leaf. But throw that in there and that's going to keep more of the crunch to your vegetables. As for the process, so we've got an eight-step process here. Make a brine with the 5% salinity, as we just said. Um, Place small ingredients all in the bottom of a clean phyto jar or a mason jar. So like the black peppercorns and the garlic, stick those down in there first. And you're doing this because you're going to stuff the beans in so tight um, that nothing will float to the top once the jar is submerged in the brine. So all those peppercorns would ideally float, and you don't want those to float and have being touched with oxygen up there. So ideally, you put all those little things in, down in there first, then you stuff it so tight that you can't, nothing's moving around. Um, so the size of your jar is going to be important there. That's another pro tip. Optional, you could place a weight on top of the vegetables or some type of st- a clean stone even, um, when I make sauerkraut, I use one of the outside, outer leaves of the sauerkraut to push everything down so that, you know, whatever might be sticking out, weird bacteria might grow on that. 
sometimes you get a little bit of growth of, of you know, uh, like a white layer on top, often just scooping those things out. No black molds, no, um, also no, no pink sediments, no yeast. We don't want any of that. Um, but I'll, I'll talk about that here in a second, what to look for. Um, but essentially, yes, yeah, submerge everything in the, in the liquid brine. Um, you can place the weight on top if needed. Um, place the lid on the jar and stick it, you know, in a 20 to 30 degrees Celsius um, room out of direct sunlight for four to 14 days or longer. It's up to you. See what you like. You can test it throughout. You, you're going to want to burp that as needed to avoid spillage. Ideally, you want to leave a good solid inch, not too much space, but at least an inch or so um, at the top of your jar so that as activity starts to happen, you're going to see this thing bubbling and coming to life. You might even hear your jar hissing at you every, you know, now and then depending on time of the year. But what you're wanting to do is, yeah, just every now and then go in there and burp that and let off a little bit of that and, and do that over your sink. Sometimes, again, if it's something like carrots with lots of sugar in them um, and it's midsummer, things can get explosive quickly. So as far as safety, again, you decide when it's done. Other than that, safety, if you leave it on real long and you want to see what happens, um, just discard any mold that may have formed around the top. You know, try to keep your, your jar lids clean. Don't go splashing, you know, have like little bits of cabbage up there. Whatever's outside of that liquid will grow some mold on it, right? But yeah, you can just discard anything with like say black mold um, and or I said black mold specifically, throw that out, not just scrape that off. Like little white molds and things like that, you can scrape that and throw it and everything underneath that brine is, is, is good to go. Good to go. Do not worry. But if there's like black mold in the bottom or a pink sediment or yeast down in the bottom, um, that's, that's a sign that something has happened as far as succession goes. And you don't want to eat that, that specifically that garlic dill beans or say that sauerkraut or those vegetables and things like that. So Anyways, I hope you guys have enjoyed this. I'm just no segue. I'm just the no segue ending today. I'm just going to switch gears and say that's all I got for you. If you enjoyed this episode, please go share it with a friend. I think that's most important. Do a little fermentation party. I know cabbage is almost uh, out and about here. So if you've got some cabbages and you want to preserve them and just remember what a great harvest what you know this year was for your cabbages or whatever your prized thing is and you want to hold on to a jar of that for, say, Christmas time, Honestly, this is one of the most enriching activities. I won't call it a rewilding practice. I don't know if it is. I find that uh, for me, anything regarding um, getting more involved with my food is what I live for. It's what gets me into even the, the whole idea of rewilding and nature connection. Procuring wild food is something I'm so excited about. So head out there even, find some wild herbs or something, maybe some dandelion, some wild leeks, ferment those, right? Um... I just think there's just so much room for creativity when it comes to fermented food. So if you guys are creating cool things, holler at your boy, tag me on Instagram, show me what you've created. I've had many friends. It wouldn't be the first time. And I really do love uh, knowing that these workshops and the, and the podcast and that give you guys the tools to do what you need to do to get out there and try something new. That's going to help you increase control over your health because that is what this show really is all about helping you be the best you you can possibly be so anyways before i tongue twist my way out of this <laughs> outro and ending i'm just going to tell you guys as always stay wild
Thank you for listening to the Rewild My Bio podcast. Please subscribe to the show and leave a five-star rating if you've enjoyed this episode. I would greatly appreciate it if you shared the show with your friends, if, of course, you think they would like it. You can also visit rewildmybio.com to download previous episodes and sign up for the newsletter. In the newsletter, I share blogs and bonus content from my health promotion research, along with practical tips to help you rewild in a modern world. Please follow along on Instagram and Facebook at Rewild My Bio and on Twitter at Sean Slade. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, stay wild.